Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, Live Talk with Pituitary World News. My name is Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. It's Thursday. That means the end of the week is in sight. Uh, it's been a busy week for me, but a good one. I think I've seen 46 patients in clinic this week and uh, had a really good time. Even though it was busy, I, I love my patients and enjoyed conversations with every single one of them. Uh, I was really amazed by some of my younger patients today who are in their late teens and early 20s that I've been taking care of for some time who are just becoming really uh, successful, uh, uh, informed, educated, and confident young adults. It's always nice to see that, especially when you've seen people for a number of years in that age group. Uh, so it was good. I hope your week has been just as uh, good as mine. There's been some interesting discussion on some of the patient support groups about medical gaslighting. And unfortunately, the New York Times came out with a paper uh, or an article recently that uh, defined what they think is medical gaslighting. And I'm, I'm just aghast at some of the things that they have uh, labeled as gaslighting because it simply uh, doesn't meet the criteria or the definition of uh, gaslighting as I understand it. And I'll have a lot more to say on that topic, uh, writing an article soon, uh, and maybe we'll even get uh, uh, a psychologist or psychiatrist involved as well in a radio show to talk about uh, what gaslighting truly is what is not gaslighting, and how to improve communication with your healthcare providers, uh, and for physicians who might be listening to improve communication with your patients. Uh, at any rate, let's move beyond that. I'm delighted today to have Dr. Kevin Ewan join us uh, to discuss the medical management of, uh, of residual and recurrent Cushing's. Uh, Dr. Ewan is a uh, uh, at the Barrow uh, Neuro Neurological, I guess, Institute uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, where he is the director of the Pituitary Center and uh, has a, a well-established practice and works with some tremendous neurosurgeons, including one of my former colleagues at that institution. And uh, they're doing some really great things in Phoenix, Arizona. We're, we're happy and pleased to have Kevin here. So, Kevin, welcome to the program. Thank you, Louis. Glad to be here. Looking forward to uh, uh, joining in today. Uh, well, how has your week gone so far? Uh, it's been busy, like yours. Uh, lots of patients. Uh, as you know, pituitary patients are definitely more challenging. Uh, but again, I enjoy very much seeing them, uh, listening to their problems, and trying to be a detective to dissect and uh, get to the bottom of their problems. Many of them have had had this uh, problem for some time, so, uh, and I feel a sense of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, you know, um, fulfillment, if you like, when, you know, when I'm able to help them, especially when they've been through so much and struggling through life, and it's always bring, brings me pleasure to uh, be able to help them and to give them hope and to, uh, to for them to face life as they go through and navigate themselves through these challenging times with their disease. That's the really nice thing about our specialty is we are able to help people and we see people improve with treatments. And uh, to, to give an example, I saw a patient today that I haven't seen in eight years. He, had, he lives at a distance and was followed by a local endocrinologist who I think is ratcheting down the practice. And he was ready to come back to me anyways because he just wasn't feeling well and he wanted some help to try to figure out what was amiss or what might be changed. And I had two things that I can do for him that I do differently than the other endocrinologists that I think are going to improve his sense of well-being. Uh, so it's nice to sort of go on these adventures, if you will, and do the, the exploration and the discovery and then come up with a plan that we think might solve patients' problems. And nine out of 10 times, I think we're able to achieve uh, success with a patient feeling better. No, I think what you say is so true, Louis. I mean, they sometimes they're so overwhelmed by what they have and what they are going through that, you know, when they wake up, you know, there's really nothing for them to look forward to except having the mindset to deal with themselves and their illness and their disease and their symptoms as they, 
make their way through the day. Uh, and as you know, it's always challenging. So even having sitting down and understanding and going through the plan and giving them that plan of action and seeing them executed and get, getting things done and getting things achieved, certainly at least sometimes not all the time, but sometimes when you're able to even help them with even the most smallest symptoms and uh, give them the uh, hope, I guess, that they that they are not alone and that there is uh, there are treatments out there, and often we involve multidisciplinary teams as well, and they uh, they're very helpful and they also give us a different facet of how to approach uh, these challenging diseases that our patients face. Now you were at, you were at the Swedish uh, medical for a while mm-hmm. uh, before going to Barrow, and prior to that you were at the University of Oregon and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just going to set the prelude for a discussion about Cushing's and ask you this question. Uh, have you seen any difference in the prevalence, if you will, or maybe you'd use the word incidence, but I think prevalence is a better word, in hypercortisolism in your current catchment or referral area compared to the prior one in, uh, in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, I think um, in the last few years, definitely, I've seen a greater number of patients being referred. Granted, not all of them have Cushing's, but indeed, some of them do. And certainly, uh, some of them have many symptoms that overlap that make them think they have Cushing's. But I think the referrals have increased, at least in terms of, hey, doc, you know, can you uh, work me up and see whether I have Cushing's or not? And I think maybe partly is related to the increased awareness of some patients. Uh, we have social media now. We have uh, many uh, talks that are now available online. And patients are very savvy these days. Uh, they are very educated, which is great. You know, sometimes they go onto online and they look up information for themselves. And and I truly advocate, uh, ask them to advocate for themselves. Uh, and sometimes I've seen patients whereby they, because of the fact that they have been so persistent and have been advocating for themselves that They've managed to come to the bottom of what they have been going through and Cushing's being one of the diseases that they have been diagnosed. So I say in a, in a nutshell, yes, I would say the, um, the awareness has increased in the last five years or so, at least in my practice. And um, and I'm seeing a little, uh, maybe 10, 15%, 20% more referrals for assessment of possible Cushing's. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I, I asked the question because when I was at... Uh... At Hopkins, my former mentor, Gary Wand, once told me that his experience in the pituitary center there was that for every 10 patients that we were referred with possible Cushing's, probably maybe three people would have Cushing's and the remainders were exclusionary. They they didn't have the diagnosis, but he felt that was a good uh, ratio because we need to see those referrals to be able to catch everybody who has the disease process. Of course, the diagnostic criteria and even the reasons for testing were much different back then. When I was on faculty at Vanderbilt in the South, I thought I saw far more Cushing's than I did at Hopkins. Uh, and the and the ratio was about a five to five. So for every five, every ten people that I saw that had been referred for evaluation of possible Cushing's, maybe five had it and five didn't. My practice at UCSF is a bit different, and it has changed over the more than fifteen years that I've been on faculty at UCSF. It, it used to be that almost everybody that I saw had Cushing's uh, because we were a referral center, but now it's probably roughly seven of 10 referrals actually proved to have Cushing's and three of 10 don't. And I think that just reflects differences in referral patterns. But I have noticed over the past, say, five years or so, we're seeing more people who are being referred to evaluate for such. And I've actually found a couple of adrenal cases of Cushing's as well and some of those people who are referred. So not everyone with Cushing's has pituitary disease. And we're starting to see some of those adrenal patients creep into our our practice, and I've managed them too, but uh, I was curious if you had noticed it, because I I think that there, there seems to be, at least in California, and it may be because people here seem to be more physically fit, say, than people in the South, uh, maybe with less metabolic syndrome, so the manifestations don't come to light as soon as they used to in the South. For a while, I thought, well, clearly Cushing's is less common here 
in the Bay Area than it was in the South. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was sort of an epiphenomenon of something else going on, like more fitness or or whether uh, whether that was a real finding. So I was curious about your experiences since you changed locations as well. Yeah, um, certainly the, the ones that are fit uh, or the, those that have embarked on a lifestyle that involves a lot of physical activity, um, I they are slightly more challenging to diagnose simply because most of the time the, the hypercortisolism in them, if they have it, tends to be milder and certainly they're more cognizant of how they feel and certainly that this helps them or prompts them to make an appointment to come and see a doctor sooner. Um, But I've seen a few, um, perhaps in the last five years, maybe out of 10, maybe three or four. Um, And I say that uh, these are people who are reasonably active and fit. Um, And here, just like in the Bay Area, we have people coming and certainly because the weather is not obviously not now in the summer but certainly aside from summer there's a lots of outdoor activities and and they they uh, seem to attract people from all over the country to come down and uh, and note and they sometimes notice that they are not as able to hike certainly we have a lot of hiking trails here so and mm-hmm. that's certainly something that uh, They've uh, brought forward and uh, presented themselves to uh, to be di- to be tested and diagnosed. So I say the uh, prevalence has grown up slightly, I would say, but I think the major challenge is really to find and to detect those with very mild hypocortisolism. And typically, the adrenal ones tend to be a little bit milder than the pituitary ones. Uh, and uh, but again, you know, uh, persistence and testing and sometimes we have to do multiple testing in order to find out whether they have uh, mild Cushing's or not but I think that's also a challenge but I think you know if we are persistent if we truly have good clinical acumen and uh, suspicion I think we should be able to get to the bottom and help many of these patients. You remind me of a patient that I took care of at Vanderbilt who was actually a Vanderbilt uh, student at the time who was a triathlete who calculated her energy expenditure for training said she was burning about 7,000 calories a day. So she, when she had Cushing's, her hypercortisolism, her presenting feature was simply decreased exercise capacity, performance, and loss of strength. She didn't gain any weight uh, because she was still burning all those calories. It was interesting. And then I saw another patient who had some sort of a an enzyme deficiency in the bowel, the small bowel that led to some maldigestion or malabsorption of uh, fats, and she and she, even though she had good pancreatic function, she wouldn't gain weight, so she was very thin, and she is another one who presented with just a myopathy as pre- presenting features and an inability to hike. You remind me of both of those patients. So not everyone looks Cushingoid. We could probably spend an hour on adrenal <laughs> disease and three or four hours on pituitary disease and, and Cushing's, but let's talk about the patient with, say, pituitary disease who has had surgery and there's the suspicion of residual or recurrent disease. And before we start talking about treatment, I think it might be useful just to review with people how we identify those people uh, that... Uh, that need additional treatment. So why don't you share your thoughts about that particular topic? Yes. So, I mean, just like you, Louis, I am in a tertiary referral center. So we get patients either self-referred or they are referred over by our community uh, endos, our colleagues, or sometimes not necessarily endocrinologists, but also other specialties like internal medicine as well. And I think the most important thing, uh, just going through the patient journey really, is to start off by taking a very detailed history because that's the most fundamental thing. And I teach medical students that, you know, Cushing's is the most challenging condition, at least in endocrinology, to, to, di- to diagnose and, some, and occasionally to treat some patients as well. And so it always is so important to get a very good history from these patients when they are presenting to you and find out why they are coming to see you and what is prompting them to seek medical attention uh, at this point. And often then more than not, they have probably seen many, many other physicians who 
may or may not have um, diagnosed what they have or may not have taken them seriously for their symptoms that they are presenting. Um, and often I tell them that they need to... Um, set, setting the expectation, I think, is important because when you're also testing and a lot, of, most of the times you're doing a lot of tests in these patients because the key thing I tell the patients is that it does not you do, you're not wasting time by doing testing and being very strategic in approaching your diagnostic algorithm and i think if you get the diagnosis right i think it it really really sets you to down the right path um, and often when i find that after they have been explained uh, patients are being explained of this um, workup and also you know to get their buy in that they are just as important because most of the hard work is done by the, these patients. Collecting the 24-hour urine is not easy in some patients, um, especially if they have young kids at home and, and they have a busy lifestyle. So I think it's very important that you uh, give them time to perform these tests uh, because ultimately you want the, these tests to be performed uh, properly, accurately. Uh, and sometimes you have to repeat some of these tests in order to uh, gain uh, a better understanding of whether or not the patient truly has biochemical diagnosis of Cushing's or not. Um, and then I suppose after you've done all that and if you're confident in the biochemical data is supportive of your clinical suspicion, then the next thing is to see where the, you localize or find out where the source of the hypercortisolism is coming from. And, most of the time, it's uh, coming from the pituitary, but must, one must never forget uh, ectopic sources and adrenal sources as well. But I think often when we've done these long enough, Louis, I'm sure you know, um, the, the timing of how, <clears throat> how long it takes for them to present themselves sometimes gives you a gauge as to the severity and, and sometimes where the location as well of the tumor but whether it's from the pituitary or from the adrenal. Uh, then multiple scans can be done, and occasionally we may even go on, go on to do IPSS, the inferior petrosal sinus sampling, uh, to locate uh, and to confirm the location of the, of the, of the source of, of the ACTH. Um, and then followed by surgery. More often, more often than not, surgery is the preferred method that we recommend to these patients unless... In some exceptional cases, we have patients where they are not suitable for surgery, for example, either because they have an underlying medical condition that precludes them, uh, or sometimes patients clearly do, you know, decline surgery for a variety of reasons, but that's not very, that's not very common. Um, and then uh, I guess we refer them to the surgeon at that point in time, um, I guess. Um, and Taking that further, you know, we monitor them in hospital. Uh, we gauge whether they're in remission or not after they've undergone surgery. And then we see them in clinic again after a few weeks. Uh, first one, typically in my practice, I see them one week and eight to nine, six to eight weeks post-operatively. And uh, determine, and I always, always tell them, Cushing's is a disease that you will always need to be followed up because especially pituitary Cushing's where uh, the likelihood of recurrence is actually relatively high and therefore close follow-up uh, and long-term follow-up is definitely something that is important and the patients need to be aware of that. And that's usually when we pick up patients with recurrent Cushing's and sometimes patients who fail surgery, those are the ones with persistent Cushing's. And that's where it becomes a little bit more challenging as to how we manage these patients when we have a variety of um, medical options that we discuss with them at that point in time, whether second surgery is viable or not, or whether surgery, uh, uh, sorry, or whether medication or medication plus radiation is, is uh, whether they are options or not. So these are some, some of the options that we discuss with, our, with my patients. And that takes time, obviously, when you're talking to them and going through in detail all these uh, options. Yeah, it, it certainly is an interesting patient journey. Use use that word earlier, and it is a journey for people and for the physician as well who joins the patient for that journey. Um, and you mentioned the uh, likelihood of uh, 
recurrence and residual disease pretty pretty high. If you look at series across the United States, um, I think your institution, my institution, have better results. But uh, you know, they say that two thirds of people are not cured of their disease after the first operation. You know, we probably cure ninety to ninety-two percent of small tumors and sixty percent of large ones, but our recurrent rates are five percent and probably twenty percent for each of those. And I, I think those are good numbers. Of, Yours are probably the same with your surgeons, but yeah. it's really 50 to 60% of people get cured of their Cushing. So there's a lot of people out there with residual and recurrent disease. Uh, those who have the uh, residual disease are easy. Their cortisol levels are still detectable or greater than two, often greater than five or 10. Their urine cortisols are often still elevated. Their ACTH levels are detectable. They don't need steroids. Uh, those with recurrent disease are interesting. These are usually people that have gone through that period of adrenal insufficiency, taken steroids for a while and come off steroids. And uh, some of my experiences are the first clues that the patient has recurrence is the patient will tell you. They'll say, my Cushing's is back. They notice they're starting to gain weight that they had lost. They're starting to have trouble with insomnia. Uh, something else about them and the change in the diurnal variation of cortisol secretion has led to their sense that they have the disease back. And many of those people, we have to be sleuths and use our uh, investigative skills to try to determine whether they have normal or abnormal cortisol secretion to determine who to treat. What are your favorite tests to use in that setting? Let's say a patient comes in two years later, I think my Cushing's is back. What are you going to do? How are you going to, how are you going <laughs> to diagnose that? And what's going to lead you to believe that they do have recurrent disease? Before so, you uh, talk about the MRI, obviously, if the course. MRI shows a recurrent tumor, that's a no-brainer. But That's a no-brainer, yeah. Of course. So I think I particularly, um, and that's where I go back to the initial history taking because that is so, so important because every patient is unique, at least uh, in my opinion. I, every patient, each individual patient has his or her own scenario that's of what has led the patient to see you and often enough when you question them closely you will find that there will be at least several prominent symptoms that led them to seek medical attention it could be the sleep it could be the weight it could be you know short onset of diabetes so i think those are the things i tend to put down on my history uh, in, in the initial time in the initial visit and then I go back and ask them again, you know, um, do you have any of these symptoms? Because patients who, uh, who are alerted by these symptoms and when they've undergone surgery and they're in remission, and if they experience some of these symptoms, they are very quick to pick these things up. And I think that is so important because they will tell you that, huh, you know, my sleeping issue has come back or my... Um, you know, my, uh, my my ankle edema or my swelling has come back for no reason. And that was the original symptomatology that led me to uh, see my doctor. So I think those are the, those clues, uh, would, again, as you mentioned, the word sleuth is, is so important that you, you, you go back and you pick up those little cues that the patient tells you and, uh, and you, and from then on you, you perform the workup. Now, but I think in terms of recurrence, especially for a patient who has a has undergone a period of quote-unquote remission, i.e. either being adrenal insufficient post-operatively for a period of time and then ending up coming off their high, uh, steroids for some time, um, generally if they were to recur, typically they would recur with a biochemical evidence that is usually not very obvious and clearly that's the case because the patient has had pituitary surgery so i think um, you have to be picking a test that at least can give you or can detect the subtleties of changes in, in cortisol's production or cortisol levels uh, so i tend to use more saliva cortisols at for such patients assuming that they have a normal sleep uh, pattern but again sometimes patients don't present nicely in a box for you and if their sleeping pattern is all over the place that makes it really difficult to uh, 
to use the saliva cortisols uh, or at least interpret the saliva cortisol results uh, um, reliably. Um, the other test would be the one milligram dexamethasone suppression test and perhaps also maybe even sometimes the two-day dexamethasone, low-dose dexamethasone um, suppression test. And then lastly, obviously, is the urine, 24-hour urine collection. Uh, but I tend to use either the saliva test or the uh, dexamethasone suppression test a little bit more frequently in those patients that I suspect with recurrence. What about you, Louis? I take the same approach. I, I, I pay attention to the results, and I like to get, it, get a lot of studies. So, for example, I do the urine cortisols in these people. One of the things that I've noticed is that those patients who have recurrent disease, probably half of them will have an elevated cortisol. The other half have normal levels. And I think a lot of physicians will look at the normal level and dismiss that patient. However, the pretest probability of having recurrence is pretty high in people who think they have the disease. So it is critical to look at late night salivary cortisol levels, or I do the salivary cortisol profile. But either one of those will give you an assessment of whether cortisol is secreted in a normal diurnal rhythm with pathologic hypercortisolism, hypercortisolism being manifest in patients who have a lack of diurnal rhythm. It's one of the one of the first things that happens when you have a tumor that secretes ACTH and drives cortisol production, you lose your rhythm because cortisol secretion with the tumor is erratic and not entrained to our, mm. our nictohemoral states and things like that. So I love the late night salivary cortisol, but then again, the DEX suppression test is a good test as well. Mm. Interestingly, one of the things that I've seen in people who have evidence for recurrent hypercortisolism or recurrent abnormalities in um, um, in, in late night salivary cortisol or salivary cortisol profile is some of them will suppress with dexamethasone, but if you just do the MRI anyway, you'll see the tumor. So mm -hmm. I think that a number of these people with small residuals still do suppress with dexamethasone. And it sort of reminds me of the utility of the dexamethasone suppressed CRH stimulation test. So sometimes I'll suppress with DEX first and then do the CRH test. And I find that to probably be better than the DEX suppression test alone. Probably also if you don't see a tumor on residual and want to sort of treat a patient or decide to treat a patient with a drug, uh, but need further proof. I think the DEX CRH test is a good old test that the NIH established in the 1990s. And we probably should do more of those in some of these people where if the cervical cortisol is abnormal, but they suppress with dexamethasone, or we're not sure we see something on MRI, I think dex-CRH is another good test in that setting. Except the fact that we, uh, it's hard to get CRH these days, so that's another issue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, yeah. the test may die as a result of that anyways. I haven't had to do one in, in probably 10 years. but. Uh, and I was thinking whether in place of that, whether there's any utility in doing DEX DDAVP instead of DEX CRH, because at least we still have DDAVP, although I have to say that test is still not as well validated as the DEX CRH, but at least it's better than nothing, I guess. You know? Yeah, exactly. I think our cortisol assays are probably also better than they used to be. Correct. 25 years ago, so I'm not sure what the cutoffs should be or could be or whether we should use the same cutoffs, but uh, it's an interesting concept to suppress and then try to stimulate, especially if you think there's a recurrent tumor. Uh, yeah. But generally, I think we think the same way uh, in the same lines of these patients. I want to reiterate something that you said earlier about going back to the original history and physical, and it's also important to review what did the pathology show? Do we have a confirmed tumor? Uh, and what were the original post-operative laboratory data and all that. So it really, when a patient comes back with possible recurrent disease, it's really starting back, starting over and going back through the whole history to make sure that all of those stepping stones leading to where you are today sort of fit with the disease, the diagnosis, or whatever you want to say, uh, and, uh, and uh, the, the possibility that this could be a recurrence. Yeah, and I think one other point I'd like to bring up too, which I've over the years that I've kind of learned is that um, it's never it's never bad to do more and over test than to under test, and because if you have a good number of data points, especially during the time the very <laughs> first time when you're seeing the patient, uh, and if say the patient recurs, may say in a year or two after the uh, 
after they've had their surgery and you're testing them again with the same test, you can actually go back and look and see, for example, like the saliva cortisol results and see, uh, and they may not necessarily have to be abnormal. They may still be in a normal range, uh, but if you see that there's a, there's a marked change between testing them second time around compared to the original time when they were tested post-operatively, uh, you can also get an idea because the thing is, a lot of the times we are always taught to look at the reference range and if it falls within the reference range, it's normal. Well, it is to a certain extent, but for that particular patient, if there's a trend of that the levels are, are changing, it might also at least give you some clues to the fact that the patient may have slight, uh, a very mild recurren uh, recurrence that is kind of taking place at that time. Yeah, the, the other opportunity is the tincture of time to follow up over time and to see that those salivary cortisol levels may continue to increase. It's a, it's also an example of why I like to do the salivary cortisol profile. Um, I had a patient last year that had, or maybe earlier this year, um, that had uh, possible recurrence and had a late night salivary cortisol of uh, 0 0.12, which is normal. 0.15 considered to be a normal, it's enough to sort of raise an eyebrow yeah. and you wonder, is this recurrence or not? But I, I had, I had had her do a salivary cortisol profile, two cortisols in the morning, two in the afternoon and two at bedtime. And they were all 0 0.12 or to 0 0.15 throughout with no dermal variation whatsoever. So it helped me to establish right away this yeah. patient's making cortisol, not in a diurnal rhythm and probably does have recurrent disease. And, uh, and we proceeded to get, her, get her, uh, an MRI and, and deliver radiotherapy to a residual lesion. I mean, ideally, it would be nice, ideally it'd be nice to um, measure serum cortisols in these patients as well if the patient is able to be admitted, especially the, you know, the late night serum cortisols, but that's not so easy to do. And certainly I mean, when I was a student, we used to, be able to do that uh, but then I was trained in the UK where you know we were able to admit the patient um, to uh, to uh, draw blood from them in you know in the early hours of the morning but um, but that's also another way of doing it but not so easy nowadays yeah fascinating well let's take just a short break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the way we approach medical management of patients with residual and recurrent disease you are listening to Live Talk. We'll be right back. Powered by Riverside FM. All right, uh, we're back. Uh, this is Dr. Lewis Blevins. I'm with Dr. Kevin Ewan at the Barrow uh, Neurological Institute, and we're talking about patients with Cushing's disease and other forms of Cushing's, but specifically Cushing's disease. And now we're going to discuss the medical management of patients with residual or recurrent hypercortisolism. So, Kevin, uh, We've, we've made our diagnosis. How do you approach the patient that has residual disease who has high normal or maybe mid-normal range cortisol levels versus the patient who may actually have frankly elevated cortisol levels? Right. Yeah. So the severity of hypercortisolism is indeed very important because that uh, will dictate how you would manage the patient or at least dictate the choices that you make in terms of therapeutic options of which ones you would be considering for the patient. Um, I think if you are, if the patient has mild hypercortisolism, 
uh, and ultimately where surgery is perhaps not no longer an option uh, then I think having a discussion with the patient taking time and imparting the uh, uh, and the discussion with the patient about the different types of medications that are available is certainly very important because the patient would want to know exactly what options he or she are going to be uh, considering and they are made available for the patient. Um, and so medications, obviously, there are uh, several now that is FDA approved. Uh, and it's interesting because up to uh, several years ago, there weren't any, uh, up to 10 years ago, there weren't any medications that were approved by the FDA. And, and up to 10 years ago, there was two, and now there's certainly three medications that are approved by the FDA. And uh, two of them are oral medications, and then one of them is an injectable medication. So I think um, going through the list and laying the options on the table for the patient to see uh, and then perhaps giving your uh, two cents as to which medication might be the best fit for the patient is certainly very important. Uh, you know, it's, about... it's inter... Sorry, it's interesting that we call it the practice of medicine because that's literally what we do, right? I mean, we, mm -hmm. we both started in this field where there's really nothing but ketoconazole, but we, had, we could use mitotane, metiroponin, aminoglutethamide, Metiropone's hard to get, aminoglutethide's no longer available. Most people with Cushing's hmm. disease won't tolerate mitotane. Yeah. So we have ketoconazole, which can cause hepatotoxicity. Fortunately, it's reversible, but it has a black box warning. And now we have a lot of drugs. Uh, so we're literally practicing as these new drugs come out, we try them in our patients to see how they work. Uh, my approach used to be that if a patient had elevated cortisol levels, I would treat them with ketoconazole. Now I have other drugs to do that. If a patient had recurrence but normal urine cortisol levels, even though they were symptomatic, usually if I found tumor, we'd do radiotherapy, repeat surgery, or just follow it if there was no tumor. But these new drugs have allowed me to practice on that group and uh, try to figure out other ways to solve their problems. And I have found that oftentimes it's useful to use some of these agents in patients when they have normal cortisol levels, uh, using the old uh, concept that what's normal for a patient might not necessarily be what's yes. normal for the population. So uh, urine cortisol 35 to 40, the patient may do better if the urine cortisol is 20. Uh, so it's been interesting, and I've certainly learned that in the last number of years uh, that uh, now that I feel that we have some safer drugs to use, that we can uh, treat those patients and ratchet their cortisol levels down to around 20 and most of them feel better and do better and lose weight and their blood pressure is better and they sleep better and all of that. So how about your experience in that realm? Yeah, I, I, I used to use ketoconazole as I'm sure most of us did uh, before the days when any drug was uh, approved and available. And yes, you're right now, there are more options and more options means Sometimes uh, it's also challenging for the patient too because ultimately the patient has to be comfortable and also one has to be educated into what these different types of medications are and how they work because that also encourages patients to uh, be compliant because ultimately no matter how important and how uh, effective the drug is, if the patient is not... Um, if you don't get the buy-in from the patient and and if the patient is not understanding why we are doing what, what what we are trying to do here certainly they may not necessarily be compliant and that's another issue too so i think a lot of education goes in i i've used ketoconazole in the past especially for those patients with mild hypercortisolemia again keeping a close eye on the liver function for the first two three four weeks after they've started it and after each dose um, increment. Uh, but now we have uh, a bit more options, um, oral medications, and then we also, has a, we also have an injectable option as well. Mm -hmm. um, again, um, the more severe uh, patients, clearly if they are severely cushing oil, then I guess then it's important to bring down their cortisols quickly because clearly these patients have a higher risk of complications and we want to make sure that 
we minimize those complications. So we want to choose an agent that has the ability to has has the ability is effective and has the ability to bring down the cortisols promptly. So zilodrostat is an option nowadays. It's available. Uh, and more recently, there's uh, the Raycolef or the levoketoconazole is another option that has been made available, approved by the FDA. Uh, Mifepristone is another option as well, particularly for patients with glucose intolerance. It's uh, approved for patients with underlying hyperglycemia. So we have options there um, that we can choose, but certainly the ultimate goal is to normalize the effects of cortisol so that the patients are, are the patient's comorbidities and, and risk factors are minimized uh, as soon as possible. Now, pituitary world news, we've done a series of podcasts on each of the different drugs available to treat patients medically, but so I don't want to review all that information here, but I was thinking about how we would approach this and I wanted to basically not holding you to anything. But I want to sort of ask you, uh, I'll mention the drug, and I want you to sort of say what comes to mind about the type of patient you would think about treating with that particular drug, because I think there are patient profiles that would dictate one course of action versus another, and I want our audience to understand how as physicians we might think and choose amongst this. You mentioned earlier, as I do, we talk to the patient about all the different drug classes, and we we like to give patients an opportunity to choose how they would like to proceed. But I think we both uh, recognize that uh, our our role as physicians is sometimes to gently nudge or guide a patient to one treatment or another based on the things that we know about the drug. So I want to try to bring that out through this discussion. So let's talk about... uh, um, um, Signifor, uh, a Signifor LAR. Uh, what what patient group would you think about you employing that drug yeah. as a first line treatment? Yeah, I have about three or four patients on Signifor, and they are doing very well on it. Um, uh, clearly, at baseline, when the patient has been diagnosed with recurrence of the disease, ideally the patient should. Um, does not have diabetes, so because one of the major side effects of the drug is uh, hyperglycemia, so it's preferable that the patient is normal glycemic at the very start. Um, and if the patient still has a visible residual tumor, but certainly not uh, amenable for surgical access, non-diabetic, um, and obviously patient who is not Adverse to injections, I think those uh, those patients would benefit from uh, would would at least find some benefit from considering the use of Signifor. Okay, and I should mention uh, Pisiriotides, the the uh, yeah. generic generic, generic name for this drug. We'll mention both generic and trade names because I, I know a lot of patients will want to go search on the net uh, after hearing some of these discussions. So. Very good. So the next drug would be um, uh, Isteresa or Silidrostat that you had mentioned. How would you uh, think of what kind of a patient profile would, would dictate that you might choose that drug first? So Osilidrostat, the, the data that has been published indicates that it's very effective and it's quite a potent uh, medication. The way it works is that it, re- it inhibits cortisol synthesis or cortisol production from directly uh, in the from the adrenal at the level of the last step before cortisol is converted and so it's very effective uh, and one of the things that I would consider for the patient would be if the patient certainly has um, uh, quite a significant hypercortisolemia and the desire is to bring the cortisol levels down promptly um, I think that would be a reasonable drug to consider. Uh, the dosing is fairly straightforward. It's twice a day, and you can take it and you can increase the dose pretty quickly. But obviously, you have to be mindful of monitoring things like potassium and blood pressure, blood sugar. And certainly for female patients, one of the things that has been reported is the uh, hirsutism or the increased uh, male uh, 
features because of the fact that it can raise testosterone levels slightly in in in, in females. Although the the effects of its effects on testosterone um, over time, certainly from the studies, have shown that it doesn't actually continue to raise the testosterone. It kind of goes up and plateaus over time. Um, so I think um, in patients where uh, hypercortisolism is uh, a huge problem, uh, if it's substantially elevated, I think that's not a, an unreasonable drug to consider for these patients. Okay. Do you, have you used it much, uh, Lewis, for this uh, this drug? Actually, I've used it a considerable amount, and I find it to be efficacious in, in probably 90% of patients. Um, I've only had one of probably, maybe maybe higher than that, one of maybe 10 or 12 people who have not had a uh, beneficial response um, to treatment. That patient, fortunately, in the period of time we were treating with the medication, over about probably six months, we escalating the dose to really partial responses, but not, not anything that was worth uh, uh, cheering over. Um, he, he had a recurrent tumor in that period of time. Initially negative MRI, six months later, urine cortisol is half of what it was, but still 200, and we saw residual tumors, so we were able to take that out and render him disease-free. Yeah. Uh, so it really, it's almost like blocking cortisol production led to less negative feedback and allowed the tumor to start growing as sort of a sort of a pseudo Nelsonoid type uh, appearance in that setting. But uh, he was the only one that really didn't normalize cortisol on treatment. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty it's impressed with those results. Right. Yeah. And certainly I think our European counterparts um, have even used it uh, as a form of a block and replacement therapy, although I don't think that has been used much as much here in the U.S. where you increase the dose to completely suppress cortisol production and then you uh, replace that with uh, hydrocortisone simultaneously. Um, and certainly that has been reported in several European centers uh, in, in, in the literature. 20 years ago, I used to take that approach with metiripone when it was relatively straightforward and easy to get. And what I saw was a lot of side effect of therapy. You know, hysteresis is a lot like metiripone. You, know, you see yeah. about the same sorts of complications. So I was seeing a lot of women who were developing hirsutism uh, with that block and replace approach and a lot of uh, apparent mineral corticoid excess with hypokalemia and hypertension. And I see some of those side, side effects that are well described with hysteresis. Uh, um, so we expect them. But to me, it seems like it wouldn't really be the drug to do block and replace for um, just because of that risk of developing these complications might be higher. So it'd be interesting. I don't know their literature. It'd be interesting to see that. Yeah, I haven't higher. used it, but uh, it was interesting to to read the literature. Uh, but again, like you, also ma majority of my patients on Ozilodrostat or Isteresa have responded very well on it and mm -hmm. remain on it, and and some of the symptoms have also improved substantially as well. So yeah, yeah. many of my patients are quite pleased to be on it. Yeah, mine too. So how about uh, the the newest uh, drug on the on the palette for us to use uh, Recorlev or Levoketoconazole. Yeah, Recorlev, I, I have not uh, prescribed any uh, yet. Um, and looking at the data, I'm well aware that uh, the, uh, the data is, is, is good, it's very solid. And I see that it is uh, obviously um, ketoconazole but it's called levoketoconazole because there is a, a change in the molecular structure that mirror images levoketoconazole. Uh, and so it behaves very much like uh, ketoconazole where you have to be very uh, cautious and mindful and keeping an eye on the liver function of these patients as well. Um, my feeling is that it's probably not as... Uh, potent is hysteresis uh, or zeodrostat, but certainly it has a place. Uh, and perhaps maybe patients that would have used uh, ketoconazole, I may consider using levoketoconazole or Recolef uh, in these patients. But so far as, as we speak now, I have not uh, put anyone on it as yet. I don't know if you tried it firsthand and seeing. I think we might have tried it in one patient or recommended it, but a patient actually choose to go on hysteresis uh, uh, mm. uh, instead. And uh, uh, Corlum or Mifepristone, what 
what, what, what type of a patient would you treat with yeah. that particular So drug? I've used Corlim for some time now since it came out in 2012. Um, and again, I'm very selective in the type of patient. Um, certainly, it does have a place in for the right patient. So typically, I, I guess the ideal patient would be a patient with diabetes, uh, a male patient with diabetes and hypertension um, because of the way it works by uh, antagonizing the, uh, the cortisol effects at the level of the receptor and certainly also can have effects on the uterus, which is why sometimes if it's used in females, particularly those with an intact uterus, uh, you can observe um, uh, uh, uterine bleeding, which is not very, um, which is not very pleasant for the female. Uh, and so I think that, together with some of the other nuances, such as potassium monitoring and uh, thyroid function monitoring, those are the key things when you're considering using uh, uh, mifepristone. Now, clearly, because of the way it works, preferably you want to use it in a patient where there's no, uh, where there's a minimal risk of tumor growth. Um, although the data of, of it inducing tumor growth is not, has, is not very solid, but still it's uh, because of the, of its mechanism of action, you want to be cautious of that as well. So I guess the ideal patient would be a male patient with no residual tumor, uh, with diabetes and hypertension. Okay, very good. That's a fairly good summary. I have also used it, uh, but sparingly, uh, maybe one patient as an outpatient who self-selected that drug over the other choices, but I've used it a couple of times in the inpatient setting in people who had uh, mm. very severe hypercortisolism with life-threatening infections and, and uh, you know, metabolic consequences where you just needed to get their glucose is under control and their hypokalemia really quickly. And it worked very well in that setting to treat that very severe, very sick hypercortisolemic patient uh, in, in the hospital setting. So I find it particularly useful there. Um, yeah. let's, go, let's go back to the old standard ketoconazole. So that drug is still available. Have you used it in a while or do you have patients still nope. taking that? I have a few, um, and I think, although I forget to mention as we are discussing about treatment options here, I think one of the things that we probably should also mention is the uh, the, the ability of um, of, insu uh, of patients' patients' insurances because that is also a big factor in determining which drug that you eventually put the patient on. Um, and so, yeah, and the reason I bring that up is because I also have patients who uh, are where insurance uh, insurance coverage uh, has been challenging for uh, the types of medications that we've just discussed. And certainly ketoconazole is a drug that is relatively inexpensive and uh, much easier to access than the other drugs that we've just mentioned. But I'm not saying that just because of the fact that uh, ketoconazole, that I, I choose ketoconazole for that reason, but occasionally by default, we've ended up using ketoconazole as a result as well. But uh, but I still think that ketoconazole is still pretty effective in some patients, especially those where they have mild hypercortisolemia and, and you know that they are going to be compliant in having their LFTs checked, their liver function checked. And, uh, and they're going to come back. And so I think those types of patients, certainly I, I, I still uh, would consider levoketoconazole. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. We certainly do have that problem, don't we? The insurance company dictating the drug they say we can use based on pharmacoeconomic data. And uh, I don't know how patients feel about that, but uh, I have a lot of experience with ketoconazole, so I tend not to be too concerned about that. I can use the drug safely and effectively in the, you know, 50 to 65% of patients that will normalize their cortisol levels. Um, but there's just something that grates my nerves when an insurance company is making a decision saying you should use a non-FDA approved drug versus an FDA approved drug. Uh, that, that just bothers me. And I think that bothers patients too. And, uh, we've actually won a few, um, 
discussions with insurance companies and appeals by stating ketoconazole is not FDA approved. You know, so if the patient has side effects, we have to deal with that with the FDA and probably also the court system. Uh, yeah. So we would rather use an FDA approved drug uh, to treat the disease. And they've usually sort of uh, reconsidered yeah. and allowed us to proceed with therapy. But I think probably you and I both have written in, in our, our careers far more prescriptions for ketoconazole already than we ever will for the remainder of our careers for the other drugs. So it's, uh, yeah, I think that's fair to say. It truly we, is where we have our experience, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. We've been brought up with ketoconazole, you know, when we are going through medical school. So it's, it's a drug that we kind of gravitate to, uh, especially when, you know, when it's so challenging to, uh, to navigate the insurance companies uh, and deal with insurance companies, when it comes to uh, getting authorization for these drugs, the newer drugs that are actually technically FDA approved. Yeah. I think Recorlev might be a little bit more efficacious or at least equally efficacious to ketoconazole. And uh, there is less hepatotoxicity, but it still has a warning about that. And, you know, it makes sense to me that if, if it comes down to using that drug, ketoconazole, probably the choice would be Recorlev uh, just yeah. for the, fact that it's FDA approved and that's a lot um, that's a lot different when you think about just what seven years ago or so I can't remember the exact timing but mid 2010s to you know 2015 or thereabouts we were concerned that the FDA was going to withdraw ketoconazole from the market uh, because of the hepatotoxicity so and what what were we going to do with our Cushing's patients we didn't have any of these other drugs and uh I think endocrinologists revolted and were able to keep it on the market. But uh, yeah. so if that's the case, we certainly shouldn't be allowing insurance companies to dictate we use a drug that the FDA almost pulled. So, yeah. And like you, I agree with you completely, which is why, you know, uh, for the patients that I would have used ketoconazole, you know, I, I would probably use levoketoconazole. Although having said that, uh, technically speaking, there hasn't been a head-to-head study comparing levoketoconazole with ketoconazole which is which i think it would be very interesting i'm not sure where oh, that's I, going to be going going to be yeah going. i i agree 100 percent. you know i'm not sure the level happen we can just sort of uh compare apples to oranges and say yeah. the these are the approximate numbers but uh, a yeah. very good point to, to finish with well i appreciate you sitting with uh, me today and having this discussion it's uh it's always wonderful to hear your perspective on uh on things given that we're contemporaries and and have uh, different backgrounds but many of the same experiences and uh, obviously those experiences that we have shape our practices uh, as we go forward Uh, and i like to sort of explore those differences uh, and also the similarities i think we're more alike than we realize it uh, when it comes to those sorts of things Uh, so i appreciate you joining us today is there anything you want to say to conclude um no, no. Thank you for having me, Louis. It's always a pleasure and uh, uh, to talk to to discuss these patients, challenging patients, certainly with a colleague who's so experienced. I, I always learn something, you know, little nuances here and there, uh, because sometimes when you're so when you're busy in your own practice, you don't really uh, appreciate you know, things can be done slightly differently. And talking to people like you has certainly also been extremely helpful from an educational standpoint. But I also think. Yeah, I think Cushing's patients, uh, they go through a lot. Um, they uh, they certainly have uh, a lot on their plate, I would say. And I think a lot of these patients, education is so important. And particularly when we have patients where they have finally got to the point where they are diagnosed with Cushing's and, and they are so looking forward to the surgery in the home that that is going to reverse all of their problems when I think it's important to set the expectations for patients that sometimes that may not be the case as well. And certainly um, a lot of empathy has to go up for these patients. And uh, and that's why we are doing what we're doing, which is uh, we're in it because we want to help our patients uh, live better lives and live longer. Yeah, very well said. Uh, thanks again. And I want to thank all of you who have joined us today uh, for tuning in and those of you listening to it at a later date. Uh, feel free to send us your comments and uh, we're happy to participate in a discussion with you, but we really truly invite you to join us for future shows and uh, uh, ask your questions so we can have you actually join the program and have a live discussion with our guests. 
Once again, Dr. Lewis Flems of the Pituitary World News. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a non-profit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.